Hello. Good morning. Is it on? Okay, thank you. I always need that. All right. All right. Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles before you, I hope that you have those, you can turn to the book of 1 John once again. We'll be back in the book of 1 John. Specifically, we're looking at chapters 3, excuse me, yeah, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. 1 John 3, and we'll be in 11 through 18 uh, this morning. Let me get there myself. Brothers and sisters, I'll say this before I open. I guess this this will be considered my introduction, okay? The introduction is that I have, on purpose, no PowerPoint, okay? My introduction to this morning, uh, the sermon, the text, is that I will have no funny stories to give. I have no jokes which to espouse. Completely, utterly honest with you, come a bit heavy to the pulpit this morning, for which I am fearful and a nervous wreck. And yet God's word is good. It is always These are difficult times that we are living in to be a pastor. Everything is vying for our attentions. Everything is saying, make this, this, make this thing important. Make that important. I believe this, I believe that. You should see it my way, you should see it that way. If you don't see it my way, then you're an enemy. If you're an enemy, then this, then this, then that. There's so many many polarizing things in our culture, whether it be political, whether it be personal, whether it be traditional. And I believe with all my heart that Satan is laughing for he is the orchestrator of such things. These are not of God. It is difficult to be a pastor today, and I'll tell you one of the other reasons, because it is one of the only professions in this world, and by the way, what I do is not a profession. It is a calling. But it's the only thing, one of the only things where if I went to your place of work and you're a doctor or a dentist or a veterinarian, it would be foolish for me to walk in and act as if I had something to give you. You are an architect or an engineer. It would be foolish for me to think I could come in and tell you how to do it better. I've given my adult life to this. And it oftentimes has brought me nothing but pain. And there's always those armchair quarterbacks, those critics who will malign those who lead. 
My calling comes with a curse. And one of the greatest curses is that those who ascribe and desire to be in such leadership positions, you, you desire a worthy task. But know this, you will be judged more harshly on the day of judgment. It comes with a price tag. Be careful to flippantly, flippantly take this pulpit, take this Bible, pretend to be God's man for every careless word and everything that you did not do and things that you did will be judged more harshly. Father God, I'm before you this morning. And I pray that you would be in your word. Your word would speak louder than any man. May, Lord God, this man be nothing but an instrument in the hand of God, a bumbling idiot, a rusty hammer, chipped and cracked at best. But God, will you use me? Will you use us for your glory, God? Be with us now this morning, I do pray. And be, more importantly, in your word this morning, I do pray. Amen. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we'll take that word and let us stand together in reverence of this word this morning as we read. First John three eleven through 18 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's was righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. You may be seated this morning. The nature of this love is illustrated here from both a negative and a positive illustration or example of love. This is one of the things I love about John. When John is trying to help us to understand the beauty of Jesus Christ, the beauty of a thing, he typically takes the beauty of a thing and has a juxtaposition, an example on the contrary of the negative side of something. Not like this, but like that. Not like this, but more like this one. This not good, this one beautiful. 
And this morning in our text, John does something. He gives us two examples, and all I'm going to do is stick to these two examples for the time being till we get to the end. Example one, we have Cain. This morning's sermon is entitled, it is test nine. I typically, I preach nine, part A and part B. I won't do that today. I'm bringing them all together. Test nine is a love, a love that is committed to the truth. A love that is committed to the truth. In other words, this is the definition of what love can look like. It should look like in the people of God. We have one example here of Cain, and I want you to know something about Cain. Cain is the one who takes. Cain is the one who takes. The second example is the example of Jesus Christ, and he is the one who gives. One who gives. Example one, Cain, the one who takes. You see, brothers and sisters, church, in our loving within the confines of the walls of the church, we should not be like Cain. We should not be allowing Cain to be our model of love or the lack thereof. And if you look with me once again in verse 12, we see this. John says, outrightly, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his own deeds, his own deeds were evil. And listen, and his brothers righteous. Brothers righteous. Now, unfortunately, I do not have time today or this morning to speak of the nature of Cain's sacrifice. I will a little bit. I will touch on it a bit. But I could, I could literally preach an entire sermon on the reason why Cain's sacrifice and offering didn't meet the requirements of God and why Abel's did. However, I will say this. Abel's sacrifice, excuse me, Cain's sacrifice did not have God or his glory in mind. Cain's sacrifice, his offering, his his act of worship did not have God at the center of its care or concern, meaning Cain's sacrifice, his actions, his service, his act of worship was self-seeking. It was pride-filled in nature. This is one of the sub-points. I have three sub-points to this first point, which is the example of Cain. And sub-point one is that Cain's Actions, his love was self-seeking and pride-filled. Our text literally tells us that his deeds were evil. Of course, the main thrust of our text this morning, if we think of anything that Cain did that was evil, we know that the context tells us that what was evil about Cain was that he murdered his brother. Okay, you got me. Kyle, the thing that was evil about Cain was he murdered someone. Yeah, amen, hallelujah, I agree. But here's the thing. I would suggest to you this morning that you can, that you can have within your heart doing certain things, even in religion, even in churchiosity, churchiosity, put my name across that, I'm going to make a lot of money off that word, 
where you can do all of this for the wrong motive. Your worship can have with it and connected with it a bit of a stench. I would suggest to you this morning, this is absolutely able to be done. We know this. Scripture is quite clear of this reality. Cain did not just have a murder problem. What you need to know is that Cain had a heart problem. Matthew 15, 18 through 20 says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This, this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. See, this was what's wrong with Abel's sacrifice. His worship. Some may say, look at what he did while he was trying to do his part. No. Sometimes things can be done and done for the wrong motive and the wrong desire. Let me tell you one or read you one that scares the bejeebies out of me. Isaiah 1, 11 through 16. Prophet Isaiah says to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, God's holy people, the one who had the, the, the worship of God and, and, and a brilliant, beautiful picture of who he was more than any nation on the face of the planet. And Isaiah looks at that congregation of people called Jews, the nation of Israel, and he says there, First, Isaiah 1, 11 through 16. What to me, this is God speaking. Listen, listen, listen. This is God speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required? This, this trampling of my hands. Bring to me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. Hates it. God hates something. They will become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. You know what, you know what Isaiah 1 is saying? God looks at Israel's worship. All your little traditional things you've been doing, the new moon Sabbaths and convocations, your feasts, and God looks at them and says literally this, you're playing at worship. And I hate it. You do all these things in the name of God, and yet God is the one who's not pleased. Isn't that scary? Listen, there's a lot of ways and reasons why people do 
many of the things that we do. I'm putting myself in that. Sometimes we do things in, in, the, in the name of religion, in the cause of our walk with Jesus. And, 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 the, and maybe sometimes we do things because of the way that it makes us feel. When you're concerned about doing something, and if, this, if, if, if the reality and the reason why you do it is because of the way it makes you feel, brothers and sisters, be careful that you do not risk doing things for self-gratification. Can you do something in the name of God that only you are seeking to gain in it? Yes. It happens every single day, including this pastor. Be careful that when we do something in, in the cause of worship or religion, that we don't do it to make ourselves look good. We do it because it makes us feel good. You know, you know the saying, it's better to give than to receive, right? And I say it is always better to give than to receive. For what purpose, for what motive, I do ask. To gain from it? To feel better about yourself? Well, it, maybe it's the way it makes you look. Remember, the Pharisees did religion very, very well. And they did all to see. And Isaiah reminds us that God says, I'm not looking at any of it. I hate it. Maybe we do something in religion because it soothes our conscience. We look in the mirror one day and think to ourselves, I am a really good man. I am a really good woman. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived that you do all that you do for self-righteousness sake. Or we may do things in religion in, in churchiosity, the way we try and get God's attention and blessings. If I do this, then God will love me more. If I do this, then God will bless me. Brothers and sisters, that's self-gaining. And oftentimes that means I do something with strings attached. Have you ever met that person who do, does things that are very nice by their own definition and standard, but it's no help to you? You know what I'm talking about? Those people come to bless you. I'm here to bless you. But they're not listening to anything you say because they want to do their blessing for you. Wonder why? Because they don't want to bless you. They do for themselves. If you would stop to listen, you would understand that I told you I love it when you wash my car, but I don't want you to wash my car. Please don't wash my car. Oh, I just want to know. I'm going to bless you. Oh, he doesn't know what he wants. We're just going to do it anyway because we love him. No, you love yourself. Oftentimes in the church, much of what we do, sometimes, not, not much, sometimes what we do is we do for the for, for, for strings attached. Brothers and sisters, these are inappropriate motives for anything. Which leads me to the second sub-point. Every bit of these things, these things that I've spoken, these self-focuses, these motives, make the giver, the one who's giving, the one who's blessing, the one who looks good, the one who feels good, the one who's self-gaining, the one who is literally saying, I want to be self-gratified in what I do. It makes the giver actually, in all honesty, a taker. You are one of the biggest takers among us. As they do all that they do for their own feelings and ends. Such an individual is easily deceived in the church and can easily deceive others. How can it so easily be deceiving to others? Well, it's due to their religious action. What we say. And in the case of Cain, 
He was even a taker of so much more to the point of taking the life of his brother even. And why? Because it says in our text, he hated Abel. And why did he hate Abel? Why did he hate Abel? Hebrews 11.4 gives us a picture. Because by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's sacrifice, brothers and sisters, it had God in mind. You could even say, maybe with even a limited knowledge, it actually had Jesus Christ in mind. How do you figure, Kai? How do you know that? Because Abel was offering a sacrifice in obedience to what God had called him to give. And what God had called him to give was always a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve sinned against God, right? They saw that they were naked. What did they go do? They sewed for themselves what? Church, what did they, what did they do? Fig leaves or some kind of bush. Hope it wasn't poison oak. And what did they do? They walked around and said, this is good enough, right? And God says, nope, not acceptable. The only way in which you must be made acceptable is that something innocent, something that did not sin, something that did not do what you did had to die so that it would cover you. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the Lamb of God in Genesis 3. Amen. God has not called us to be creative or cheeky. He called us to be obedient. Abel was pointing people to Jesus. Cain is pointing people to himself. Remember the Passover lamb. Remember Abraham and Isaac on that mountain. All of these things are to point to Jesus. And don't forget Jesus on the cross is the culmination of all the Old Testament's typology of this sacrifice. Abel gave an acceptable sacrifice. It pointed people to Jesus. Cain hated him. He had his focus on God and his glory, obedience. Cain had his focus on himself, which led to disobedience. And when God had regard for Abel's sacrifice over his own in Genesis 4, we learn, we see the scene, we see the picture. He was angry and he was jealous. That's the third sub-point. Oftentimes people like this become jealous very, very easily. Brothers and sisters, such people, me-focused and me-centered people, are often so easily offended so easily put out they're so easily made jealous why because like Cain so many can get so caught up in all the practices of religion the doing the speaking and actions of holiness remember the Pharisees did this well that they forget why and for whom they do it in the first place God not for ourselves we do it for others not for ourselves so I'll transition here So we are first given Cain a what not to be, a what not to do, as what not to emulate in the church. And then we are given a second and better example. Who is it? The example of Jesus Christ. This is the one who gives. Look with me in verse 16 and 18 again. By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, and that is what we are. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now we see a true picture of true love within the church this morning, even from our text. And we can derive three specific counterpoints what we have just learned in regards to Cain, his love and what his worship looked like. We see three. One is Jesus' love is sacrificial. Jesus' love comes at a price. Number two, Jesus' love is a giving love. It's not just lip service, it does. And number three, Jesus' love, it's concerned with the truth, Jesus' love speaks. It speaks. One, Jesus' love is sacrificial. See this in verse 16. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. Unlike Cain, those of us who truly understand this point, unlike Cain, Those of us in this room who understand this point that Jesus is love, is a sacrificial love, we are to be the most unoffended people on the face of this planet. We should be those with the thickest of skin, all of humanity. We are to be seen as the not so easily offended. Did you hear what I just said? Please listen to what I just said. We who are in Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is very difficult for any of us to take an offense. Because it is difficult to take offense when you stop and look at the cross and realize that there has only been one who has ever, truly, ever, in all eternity been offended, and his name is Jesus Christ. My sins daily offend him. So why will I be offended? When someone wrongs me, my very life and mouth has offended God from the moment I was born. And God loves me with an everlasting love, a grace-filled mercy love that I don't deserve and you don't deserve. Yes, the flesh is powerful. I'm still in it. The spirit, spirit is ours in Christ Jesus. We should be the most non-offended people on the face of the earth because we know who we are and where we were and what God pulled us out of in order to call us children. Amen? How can we be offended? Cannot be. I and you, we are they in Christ. We are they. Yes, that cross should produce in God's people a thick-skinnedness because at the cross what man says and thinks of you not only is true apart from Jesus Christ. So you know what I'm Everything that anyone ever believes about me, I'm going to go ahead and tell you a hint. They're right. Apart from a saving work of Jesus Christ. Oh, brother and sister, listen to me. You are worse than you probably think on your best day. And in it all, he is still, he is good. 
It also means that nothing has not, it has not the power of what Christ says of us. And in other words, what I mean by that is whatever you think of each other or me or you, vice versa, means nothing in comparison to what Jesus Christ says of you. What can man do to us? If Christ be for us, what man can stand against us? Amen? His love, his affection, and care ought to be enough. And that mercy and that grace to rebel sinners, enemies such as you and I, should drive us to show kindness and care towards others. If there were ever a time for someone to open their mouth to let others have it, it was Jesus Christ on that cross. And while he was nailed to the cross, what does he does? What does he do? He remains silent. He just takes the blows. They spit upon him. They curse him. They laugh at him. And they cheer on his demise. And I'm sure it hurt him in the flesh and as God. And he sits there and he just keeps on taking it. There has only been one that's ever been offended. His name is Christ. He takes it all. Romans 12, 9 through 10 says, Let love, listen to me, church, let love be genuine. Abhor, which is another word for hate, what is evil. Hold fast to what is evil. Love one another with brotherly affections. Listen, listen, listen. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know what? It is difficult. It is difficult to get offended. When all you desire as a Christian, as Romans says, is to outdo one another, each other, in showing love. For God, his glory, and for others. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that is this. Look, if all, I'm, if all I care about is loving Randy, loving him, and I do certain things, or I say certain things, or I do do actually uh, physical things, and Randy never gives me anything nice back. Well, you know, I did that thing for Randy, and he didn't. He never, he just never even recognizes it. I never had a one phone call from him. Never sent me a card of thank you. Who cares? Outdo one another in showing love. If my 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 desire is to outlove this man, him. And he doesn't show it back. Who cares? Trying to get the trophy over here of loving other people. If that's my preoccupation, do I care about myself much more? No. Church, outdo one another in showing love. If you want to be competitive in anything, do that one. Do that one. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to get the trophy. There's only one who holds the trophy up, and his name is Christ. But we strive for it. We must seek to do that. Yeah, that hurt. Yes, that response stung. Yes, that name, they just called me. It cut me deep. But you know what? We must be committed to outdo them in love for God's glory and for their good. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I'm going to stop. Listen to me. Listen to me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The king steps down from his throne and takes a beggar's rag, and he walks among us. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, yes, death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, know something right now this morning before we walk out of here. Jesus' love is sacrificial love. Amen? Love like Jesus. It costs you like it costs Jesus. Isn't it interesting that there was no one who ever loved humanity more like Jesus and he still ended up on a cross? Isn't it interesting that 12 or 11 of the 12 disciples were literally put to death because of their fidelity to the love of Jesus Christ? It didn't matter. It's sacrificial, and if we were to love other people, it will cost us comfort. It will cost us ease. It may even cost you your reputation. It may cost you money. It may cost you your own self-focuses. That's okay. Because if we love like Jesus, we love sacrificially. Give up a lot. Love like Jesus. I'm going to go a step further. It is not easy to love like Jesus. Jesus' love, number two, is it's a giving love. We see this in verse 17, and we see um, this in 18. It says there in 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What I want you to see right now in verse 17 specifically is the world's goods. You need to know that that's physical needs. That's physical needs like, like, like food and clothing and shelter. Now, I want you to know something about this. A Christian love does not necessarily uh, go into the realm of what people want. You know that, right? I need a new cell phone. You know, my car is not bumping and thumping as it once was. I like some new shoes. I just want to get that clear. I just want to make sure you understand that it is a matter of giving needs actual goods if someone is desperately in need of clothing clothing shelter food and we who have the world's goods and we close ourselves off to them with no compassion and care it says that God's love does not abide in us but I want to make that sure that you get that it's needs not wants it just in our culture we have to say that a lot if he closes his heart it says in our text God's love brothers and sisters is not indifferent not just a matter of nice sentiments. It is an acting love. It's not, I wish you well, brother. Good luck. I'm praying for you. Hey, praying for you. Please continue to pray for me, but I am starving. Praying for that. Which again is part of the sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ's love. You might be giving up of yourself to give to the needs of someone else. However, here, here, we specifically see tangible realities, and I want you to know that they're important. The giving, the doing, physically of people's needs. But I want you to know something real quick. But again, the reason and motive in this giving is so important. Again, why do you give? I'm going to take up an offering, church. Pastor Kyle is going to give an offering for this guy over here who needs some help. I'm leading this effort. Look at me. I'm not saying that's always wrong. Sometimes you've got to get the communication out, right? But you know what I mean by this? Look at me. Giving to the needy. 
It's so nasty and gross, like the Pharisees of old. This is so counter Cain type love. He takes life, Christ gives life. Jesus' type of love always gives love on behalf of another. It's volitional. It takes nothing for itself. It is given even if it receives nothing in return. It's simply an act on behalf of another for God's glory and their good. I'm going to give this person this, even though all they ever give me is that. Okay. Christ has given me much. I am the richest man among you in the grace and mercy of God. Please understand this. The love of the Bible does not merely consist in giving to the poor. In other words, giving to the poor, food to the hungry, placing shoes on the shoeless, and housing the homeless. All good, all things we should do. We do good works not to become Christians. We do good works because we are Christians. While these are important and a part of Jesus' love, it is not the complete picture of Jesus' love. It's going to lead me to my last point. I need you to understand something. I have met many Buddhists who are very kind and generous people, and they don't do it for God's glory. I know atheists who are actually more generous than Christians. I know Mormons and Muslims who are kind, love well. They do not do it for the glory of Jesus Christ at all. Which brings us to our last aspect of Christ's love from our text this morning. Thirdly and lastly, Jesus' love is concerned with the truth. It's concerned with the truth. It says in verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word, not just talk. Don't just talk a good game. He says, but in deed and actually what you do. And I would say that that deed is not just tied in what you give, but I would say sometimes, do you know that you can give responses to people too? That's giving. Someone offends you, you give them something in return. What do you give them? Hopefully kindness and love and gentleness and patience. Or what's on the other end? Your vitriol, your anger, your hate. You see with that? You, can, you see how that giving goes? It says that the, this, this is aspect of Christian love is concerned with deeds, giving, doing. In 18, it says, and in the truth. Talk about unpopular today. Perhaps one of the greatest sources of the Christian's persecution, and we, we have little of it here, by the way, comes from what they espouse with their mouths. If the truth will set you free, as Scripture says, then Satan does not want people dealing in the truth anymore. We live in a day and age where truth is, we've heard it all before, relative, right? Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. As the old rapper once said, what if my truth says that your truth is a lie, is my truth still true? It's all right if it blows your mind, it's okay, it's called circular reasoning and makes no logical sense. It's hard to come by truth anymore, isn't it? One, because our culture says that there is no absolute truth. Number two, it seems that there's a lot of preachers who peddle in that lie. Listen to me, church. Truth divides. It does. It would have us be distracted by others' focuses 
And on one of the greatest distractions today, it, truth, this, this inability to handle truth or deal with truth or at least seek to mind the understanding of truth, we are so caught up in our worldliness, our canidness in worship that one of the ways that I believe that Satan has disguised and distracted the church from greater truth is something called your feelings. Listen to me, because I don't know if you've noticed, I don't really care about them right now. Your feelings. I don't, I'm not cussing. I'm not God. I'm to, to hell with your feelings. To hell with it. Because that's where most of it comes from. How desperately sick is the heart of man? Jeremiah says to us, the heart is desperately sick above all things. Who can understand it? Paul says, who would deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ. Your feelings. They will lie to you because your feelings are broken at the fall. Your feelings are not God. Your feelings are not God's word. Your feelings may not have anything to do with God's glory at all. They may just be your feeling. This is a great evil that has found its way into the church If my feelings are hurt, then I must have been wronged. And if my feelings are hurt, someone must repent. It's always funny that the people who are most hurt are usually the ones who never seem to be offending anyone. And many seem totally fine today offending God as long as no one else be put out. We're totally fine today offending God if, 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 if only we don't hurt anyone else's feelings. J.C. Ryle has said, and yet be it remembered, our blessed master never flattered sinners or connived at sin. He never shrank from exposing wickedness in its true colors or from rebuking those who cleave to it. He never hesitated to denounce false doctrine by, whatever, by whoever it might be held or to exhibit false practice in its true colors and the certain end to which it ends, for it trends. He called things by their proper names. Proper names. He spoke as freely as hell and the fire that is never quenched as of heaven and the kingdom of glory. Listen to this. He has left on record an everlasting proof that perfect love, perfect love does not require us to approve everybody's life or opinions that it is quite possible to condemn false doctrine and wicked practice and yet be full of love at the same time. To throw a veil over sin and refuse to call things by their proper names, to talk of hearts from, that are being good when lives are flatly wrong, to shut our eyes against wickedness and say smooth things of immorality. This is not scriptural love. No, church, it is actually downright hate-filled. It is hateful. It is hateful. So many today, due to the pressure and or their own desire for peace, maybe the world's peace, and comfort, have often minded their own business, which I could say sometimes leads us into a realm of self-love at the expense of others. And if I, if I, step, if I say something, it's going to... I'm going to offer a beating on myself. Remember that sacrificial love? Jesus spoke, he did, and what did the world do to him? Sometimes when you step your foot into it to help and to love and your motive is right and good, guess what? The world will condemn you for it and they will hate you for it. Be prepared for it, it will come. 
Now, there is an important reality here. And I want you to hear this. Listen to me. A friend of mine, or a Facebook friend, which that means we probably aren't friends at all, but somehow another we feel like we're friends. Matt Smithhurst, he said this on Facebook yesterday, and I saw it and I said, I'm putting it in. If you're unwilling to offend others, you're not fit for ministry. He said that again. I'm going to say that one more time. Okay. If you're not unwilling, if you're unwilling to offend others, you're not fit for ministry. And if you're eager to offend others, you are not fit for ministry. Did you get that? You can fall off two sides of that saddle. Yes, there is danger on both sides of this reality. But remember, Paul in Galatians 4, he says, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And then he says in verse 14, Have I then become your enemies by telling you the truth? The apostle Paul loved the church in Galatia. He loved her. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I know how much I've studied deeply Galatians. He loved this church. Have I now become your enemy? Because I told you the truth. He says to his understudy, Timothy, there is going to come a time where people will gather around themselves, teachers, to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they will turn away often to myth, and they will no longer listen to the truth. They will gather around themselves teachers to do such. They say, give me what makes me feel good. I do not wish to be inconvenienced. I do not wish to be made uncomfortable. I don't know how that makes me feel today. I have a question for you. And what will be the world's response? We see it in verse 13. What will be the world's response to this type of love? Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If in doing these things you think that you would get the world's love and adoration, then someone, some preacher along the way has been lying to you. Question. Understand this this morning. And even if you do all these things, even if you become sacrificial, even if you give all you have to the poor, even if you answer in kindness and gentleness, even if you seek to be thick-skinned as not to take offense by others, even if you take upon yourself reproach and listen slander, even if you forgive, the world may still hate you if you say anything that is true, that would threaten their self-seeking, pride-filled, Cain-like religion, love, and or living. You don't think that it's in the church, brothers. You haven't been watching quite long enough. John Piper has wrote, wrote, wrote something, and I'm going to read it to you today as a pastor. This the pastor, one of the pastors of this church. And I really need you all to listen to this because I think that Satan is doing. John Piper says, not feeling loved and not being loved are not the same. Jesus loved all people well, and many did not like the way he loved them. Was David's zeal for the Lord imbalanced because his wife, Michal, despised him for it? Was Job's devotion to the Lord inordinate because his wife urged him to curse God and die? Would Gomer be a reliable witness to Hosea's devotion? Now listen to this. 
I have seen so much emotional blackmail in my ministry, I am jealous to raise a warning against it. Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. Brothers and sisters, there is now no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth no longer matters. All that matters is the sovereign sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. And it is above reproach. This emotional device is a great evil. And I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry, and I am eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. My feelings are hurt. I'm offended. Every time I open up God's word, I'm offended. Every time it stings because I know I don't, I'm not this man that I, I so desire to be, but I long and I want to be much more like Jesus. My conclusion. And yet there's the cross. And I am personally overwhelmed by the reality of this in my own life. I am a weird type of individual. I don't scare easily. I've seen too much. And I've been delivered by too much. That cross causes me to stand in places like this and deliver sermons like this because I'm fearful of the the repercussions of such a sermon. In my flesh, but in my spirit, I'm totally fine. God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply. And I am that fool who just believes that God will still and continually is building his church with or without us. So when this emotional blackmail comes, I have a little journal here I've been keeping for quite many decades now. There's something in it that I have to read often, all the time, because I'm, because I'm, because I'm sinful. And it says this, and I'll, I'll close. For us in this room, we have a picture of that cross stamped across our eyelids. We've been saved by much in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are those who are very, it's very difficult to offend us. Listen, it should be. There is this, this, this thing that I found, and I don't even know who it is. It's, it's, nobody knows the author. I kind of like that. It's called being steadfast. Listen to this. Stick to your work. First cover in my little booklet that I've had for my notes for the past couple of years. Stick to your work. Do not flinch because the lions roar. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let liars lie. Let sectarians quarrel. Let critics malign. Let enemies accuse. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it that nothing hinders you from fulfilling with joy the work God has given you. He has not commanded you to be admired or esteemed. He has never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehoods, which Satan or even, yes, God's servants may start to peddle or to track down every rumor that threatens your reputation. 
If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at this for the rest of your life. It will be a work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep at your work. Let your aim be as steady as a star. You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, and rejected, misunderstood or assigned, assigned impure motives. You may be accused by foes, forsaken by friends, and despised and rejected of men, but see to it with steadfast determination, with unfaltering zeal, that you pursue the great purpose of your life and object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work in which you have given me to do. Here I stand, I can do no other. This is how I know to love God and continue to love others. Even if I get nothing from it but the world's hatred and disdain, Jesus' love before us is sacrificial love. It will cost you something. Mark it down. You love people the way Jesus did, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It is a giving love, volitionally. God has given you mercy and grace as an act of his will. Practice that will inside of yourselves to give mercy and grace to people who don't even feel deserve it. Because you didn't deserve it. The gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed the way I deal with people. It must. And it is committed, brothers and sisters, it may not be popular today, but it is committed to the truth. Christ's disciples must follow in the same measure. Seek your own motives and reasons, brothers and sisters, and may they simply be a seeking to love others in the same manner at which you have been loved by Christ. His is a bold love. His is a giving love. And on behalf of others, it is a love that is committed to truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do. Father God, I come before you this morning, and I pray that that is the the reality of not only the pastor that is standing in this pulpit this morning, but all of us in Christ Jesus. For that call to be gentle, to be not committed to quarrelsome acts and actions, correcting individuals gently, because we desire for them to be made right, we desire for ourselves to be made right, Ultimately, God, there's really one prayer before we sing our final song, and that is this. Make us more like you. Because of the vision of the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, for which I pray is our devotion. It is our eyes' attention. It's the only thing in the world of all the distractions around us that we will stare at and look at, and we will stand in, in love and adoration and obedience to it. Constantly inviting people along the way to look at it with our own fidelity and focus. Lord, would it transform us as a people and may it be a countercultural community that makes the world stand back and say, how is it that they love each other like this? Because, Lord, you first loved us.
May we worship you this morning for such truth. Help us to shine, God, bright in Wilmington, North Carolina, and ultimately throughout the world, I do pray. Amen.